ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus in chapter 13 this morning. Exodus in chapter 13. Last couple times I've filled in for Pastor Pat, I've uh, taught on Exodus, so I thought we'd continue the tradition again this Sunday, and probably a couple of other times over the summer as well. Have you ever felt trapped? Have you ever felt like uh, you're in a situation where there are no good choices before you? Um, Perhaps it has to do with uh, circumstances in your life. Perhaps it's events that are coming up or events that are ongoing. Um, Maybe some decisions that you've got, some choices to be made. Maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe you've got a physical illness and you just don't see anywhere out. You fear for your life, perhaps. And maybe you're in a situation that happened so quickly and you didn't in any way see it coming. In a time of desperation, where do you go? What do you do when you don't really see another option or a good place to turn? What's the way out? Well, as we come to our passage today, you're going to see a people were trapped as the people of Israel. Their circumstances are is that uh, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, a ruthless slavery under a brutal dictator, Pharaoh, God has raised up a man, a man by the name of Moses, a flawed man to be sure. A man in his first attempt to stand up for his people actually murdered an Egyptian guard and his own people turned against him as a result of that, threatening to turn him in, so he fled for 40 years to the wilderness. He ran away. This Moses, whom we think of as the hero of the book of Exodus, but in reality God is the hero of the book of Exodus, This Moses is called again by God. God appears to him in a burning bush in the desert and calls Moses once again to redeem his people, to free them from slavery. Moses doesn't want the job. He says, God, I'm not much of a speaker. How can I go stand in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the earth? God says, Moses, didn't I make your mouth? He says, fine, I'll give you Aaron, your brother. He's a good speaker. Now go do your job. Lead the people. So Moses goes before Pharaoh. Pleads with Pharaoh to let my people go. Let Israel go and worship God in the wilderness. Pharaoh stubbornly hardens his heart towards the Israelites and says, no. He won't let them go. And through hail and boils and flies and the next nine plagues, God keeps turning up the heat on Pharaoh and Pharaoh keeps saying, no, your people cannot go. Finally, God gets to the point where He threatens Pharaoh with the death of his firstborn child and every firstborn in every family throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh still says, no, I will not let your people go and worship you. Worship your God. 
So God sends the angel of death across the land of Egypt, killing the firstborn in every family. From Pharaoh's firstborn, from the heir of the throne of the king of Egypt to the lowliest peasant. But God makes provision for his people and for some Egyptians too who take refuge in the house of the Israelites. He tells them that they would sacrifice a lamb. And if they would take the blood of that lamb and apply it to the doorposts and over the door, that the angel of death would pass over their house and their families would be saved. And the firstborn of all the children of Israel, of all the families of Israel, would survive. That was celebrated first almost 3,500 years ago now. It's called the Passover. The Jews still celebrate it today. We as Christians look forward to that from that perspective of the Old Testament. And we can look forward and see that that was a picture for us. A picture of our Passover lamb. Just as that lamb provided a substitute for the eldest son in every family of Israel. So too Jesus Christ is our substitute as our lamb of God to pay the penalty for our sin. And finally, after this most horrific of plagues comes down upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh in judgment, Pharaoh says, fine, get out of here. Leave. You may go, Moses. That brings us to verse 17 of chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Exodus, verse 17. I have a five-part outline for you this morning. Point number one, verses chapter 13, verse 17 to chapter 14, verse 2. God leads His people to redemption. Point number two. Pharaoh pursues his own judgment in verses 3 to 9 of chapter 14. Point number three. God's people cry out for deliverance but then complain. Verses 10 to 12 of chapter 14. Point number four, God's way of redemption, God's way of salvation. Verses 13 to 22. And then point number five, God's judgment falls on the rebels in verses 21 to 31. Let's pray before we dive into the Scripture this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. We pray, Father, as we come to it this morning, that our hearts would be soft and our ears would be open. I pray, Father, for the work of Your Spirit, not only in me so that my words might accurately reflect Your Word, but also in the hearts of Your people gathered here this morning. That your word would not just go in one ear and out the other, but Father, it would have an impact in our lives. It would transform us and change our thinking about you. That we would think that you are the great God, a greater God because of what we hear this morning. That we would see that you are the God of all salvation, that you are God of all creation. That you are the one true God who is to be feared above all else. We pray, Father, that even this week we would be reminded each and every day of that. 
that we would come before you in prayer and acknowledge that we are but humble sinners who have nothing to offer you, but that you in your grace and in your mercy and in your love have poured out upon us a salvation in Christ that is beyond our understanding, Father. And I pray, Lord, that we would grow in that understanding of grace even as we study this picture of the salvation that you have provided in the Old Testament for us. That even though it was written almost 3,500 years ago, that we would understand, Lord, that you are a God of all history. You are the God that transforms lives. You are the God that changes through your gracious choice and through your judgment. We praise you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one. God leads his people to salvation. Verse 17, chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. God did not take his people on the most direct route to the promised land. The land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob centuries before, and he was now going to fulfill his promise by taking his people Israel, whom he has grown from a tiny family of 70 people to a group of over 2 million to the promised land. They could have marched straight there, but that would have meant coming up against the Philistines, a military power. And God took them a different way. And God took them a different way for a purpose, as we shall see. Verse 18. But God led the people. He's actively involved in leading His people now. He's not some passive God that's just sitting back and watching what's happening. He led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That's an exact quote from from Genesis chapter 50, verse 25. Moses is making the connection for us that these are the same people that were preserved by Joseph being taken into Egypt and becoming a great man over Egypt. That Joseph preserved the family of Israel, preserved the nation of Israel, as God put Joseph in a position where he could save Israel from the famine that was going on in the land. So Joseph brought his father Jacob, whom God changed Jacob's name to Israel later, took Jacob and all of his sons, his sons who had thrown Joseph into a pit and then sold him off to slave traders to go to Egypt to be gone forever and took his coat of many colors back to dad and said, look, he's dead. He's gone for good. This Joseph, this Joseph that reminds us of all the promises God had made to the people of Israel to bring them out of the land and to bring them to the land of Canaan. Verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. 
And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Lest the people of Israel forget, God gives them a very visual reminder that He is with them. This pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, is with them along their journey from Egypt. It is a constant reminder. Now look down at chapter 14, verse 19 with me, just a little ways down the page in your Bible. We'll get a little hint of what this is. Verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. This is the angel of the Lord, appearing not as an angel, but as a pillar of cloud and fire. This is God himself. The angel of the Lord. We have seen the angel of the Lord before in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 and the burning bush. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses as a burning bush, a bush that was not consumed, and the angel called Moses. The Lord called Moses to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. So here we have again this pillar of cloud this pillar of fire that is actually the Lord. Back to chapter 14, verse 1. Our story continues. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharirath between Midgal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephor. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. God has led Israel now to a place. A place that some might think is a trap for Israel. Why? Because right before them is the sea, and right behind them is the desert. Sea, desert. Where do we go from here? In reality, this was a trap not for the people of Israel, but this was a trap for Pharaoh that God has set. See, God has a plan here, just like He's had a plan from the very beginning of all time. And this plan is to let His glory be shown through Pharaoh. That brings us to point number two. Pharaoh pursues his own judgment, verses 3 to 9. Verse 3, For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. Pharaoh recognizes that they are at a place that they are very vulnerable in right now. He believes that the Israelites are easy prey. These people whom he blames for killing his firstborn son and bringing agricultural disaster upon his nation. These people led by Moses. This Hebrew who's come before him many times, and has made a mockery of his rule. 
Pharaoh seems to be regretting his decision to let people, God's people go. After all, his economy, Egypt's economy, has been built on slave labor. The great building programs of Egypt, the pyramids, the temples, the cities, were constructed using slave labor, the slavery of the Israelite people. And perhaps it entered Pharaoh's mind that all these plagues, maybe they're just a freak of nature after all. Maybe it's just a streak of bad luck. Well, that's a tragic mistake on Pharaoh's part. Verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. In verse 8, again, it's we're told God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In verse 17, we're told God hardens the Egyptians' hearts. Now, let's not get too confused here. Pharaoh is not a neutral party. He is an evil man. He has not only hardened his own heart, but now God is sovereignly working to harden his heart to bring glory to himself. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Notice he takes 600 chosen chariots in addition to the rest of them as well. This is Pharaoh's seal team, so to speak. He's getting the best of his best together to go chase down these Israelites. He wants nothing but his crack soldiers along for the ride. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped by the sea by Peheroth in front of Baal-Zephon. They are coming right into God's trap. They think things are going so well. We've got them right where we want them. They're backed up against the sea. We're coming across the desert. They have nowhere to escape. Point number three. God's people cry out for deliverance and then complain. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes. Can you imagine? They can see the cloud coming across the horizon towards them. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They feared greatly. These are the same people that have watched ten plagues decimate the land of Egypt. Ten plagues that God has brought that have continued to increase the pressure on Pharaoh in Egypt to let God's people go. And their first reaction is they feared the Egyptians. But give them credit. Look what they do next. 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. They prayed to Him for help. After all, their options look pretty limited, don't they? They're backed up to the sea. In front of them, Pharaoh's army is bearing down. They're not equipped for that kind of a battle. It looks pretty bleak. And they're praying for God's help. But they don't pray for it for very long. Let's look at what it says next in our text. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? You see, they quickly move on from crying out to the Lord to singling out a more immediate and available target. Moses himself. Moses, this is your fault. What's about to happen, Moses, is because of you. As a matter of fact, their comments are rather mocking, right? Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away? What are the Egyptians, these ancient Egyptians, most famous for? Pyramids, right? What are pyramids? I heard it. They're graves, they're tombs, they're monuments to people buried in them, the pharaohs. And there's no lack of desert in Egypt for graves, right? These people, they are mocking Moses. They are mocking Moses in saying this. You go to the museums and what do you find? Mummies, right? These are the experts on preserving dead bodies. They know how to do graves over there in Egypt. So when they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? They are mad. And they're letting him know with their sarcastic comments. Verse 12, they continue. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? I told you so. You can hear it coming, can't you? I told you we shouldn't leave Egypt, Moses. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Really? They loved their slavery? No, they didn't. They're looking back with rose-colored glasses and seeing how great it was compared to what they're facing now. Because what they're facing now isn't looking good. Well, brings us to point number four. God's way of salvation, verses 13 to 22. By the way, just before I move on, isn't that so much like us? Isn't the reaction of the Israelites so much like we are? When we initially get hit with something, yeah, we're fearful. We get bad news from the doctor. Yeah, we're fearful. We have some circumstance going on at work. Yeah, we're fearful. And then we take it to the Lord. We pray about it. But it isn't long before we get a little tired of being in that period of waiting for God to answer our prayer or for things to clear up in these difficult circumstances or for this illness to go away, God to cure me. And so what do we start to do? Complain? Blame other people? See, when the Israelites are complaining against 
Moses, who are they really complaining against? God, right? Did God know their circumstances? Huh. God led them into their circumstances. Did God know what they were thinking and what they were dealing with? Did God know that Pharaoh and his army were coming? Yeah, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his army would be coming. Is God control of, in control of every aspect of what's going on here? Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is. And yet we complain and struggle and worry. Well, Moses has an answer for him. Point number four, God's way of salvation, verses 13 to 22. Moses has three answers to be exact. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Moses says it right out. I know you're afraid. Fear not. Do not be afraid, Moses said. In doing so, he echoes the words of Abraham, or the words of God to Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 15 and 26. He foreshadows the words of Jesus. We have nothing to fear in the Lord. If God is with us, who can be against us? Fear not, he says. And then he says, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. See the deliverance that God is going to bring. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Imagine Moses saying this to the Israelites. They're watching the army coming. And Moses said, that army, you're never going to see them again after today. You get the feeling God knows what he's going to do? He's got a plan? You bet. You bet he does. And then verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Oh, you mean Moses isn't rallying the people of Israel to arms so they can go into battle against the Egyptian army? No, he's not. He says, be still. The Lord will fight for you. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 in your New Testament. If you get through the Gospels to Acts to Romans, and then there's 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. It's a pretty messed up church. They have lots of problems in Corinth. Okay, I could go through a litany of lists. You can read it for yourself the next time you're reading through the book of 1 Corinthians. They have sexual immorality going on. They have the rich people putting it down, putting down the poor people in church. You got lots of bad things happening in 1 Corinthians. And as Paul gets to the end of the letter, he is reminding the Corinthians of what is the most important thing. It isn't their status. It isn't how they get it over on somebody else. It isn't how much sexual pleasure they can have. 
He says, what's the most important thing? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance, Paul writes, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. That word for, very important word. It means Christ died in our place for our sins. Christ died on our behalf for our sins. In our place. For us. On our behalf. That's what He did on the cross. That's the most important thing. Now turn back to Exodus 14. Exodus 14, verse 14. What's the Lord going to do? The Lord will fight for you, Israel. The Lord will fight in your place. The Lord will fight on your behalf. And what are you to do? Absolutely nothing. God is picturing for us salvation. The salvation of the Israelites, in this case, from the oncoming Egyptians. The salvation from our own sin that he pictures for us in 1 Corinthians 15. The Lord will fight for you. You can do nothing. By grace we have been saved through faith. Not as a result of works. See, they can't do anything. God's going to do it. God is going to come to the rescue. The Lord will act by himself And he will act on behalf of the Israelites. He wants them to stop all their action and see what God will do. Verse 15. I love this. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. In other words, stop your crying and get moving. It's time to go on with this. Let's go. Verse 16, God says, Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. First of all, Moses is called to lift up his staff. Lift up his staff. In Numbers 21, The people of Israel will all be dying because of their sinful rebellion against God. And Moses lifts up a serpent on a pole in the wilderness and tells the people to look at it and they will be saved from their sin. Turn with me to John chapter 3. This idea of lifting something up. John chapter 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. When Jesus is lifted up is a synonym for when Jesus is crucified. You would nail the individual to the cross and they would lift up the cross and then drop it into the hole. 
If you've ever set fence posts, you know what I mean. You dig the post hole, you lift up the post, and you drop it in the hole. When Christ was lifted up, they're saying Christ is crucified. And God's power is about to be displayed in salvation when He lifts up Moses' staff. When Christ is lifted up on the cross. God's power in salvation is about to be displayed. So Moses is to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand. Turn back with me to Exodus 14 again. Exodus 14, verse 16. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea. Well, so Moses is going to stretch out his hand. Do you know Moses has stretched out his hand on nearly every plague that came upon Egypt? Well, let's see whose hand that really was. We read it already this morning. Turn over to Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. When we read that Moses is stretching out his right hand, it's a display of God's power. So this deliverance that God is about to bring about, this salvation that He is about to bring about of His people Israel is a display of His power that foreshadows the power He will display when Christ comes and dies on the cross for our sins and is buried and rises again. This is the picture He is painting for us. Verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his toast, his chariots and his horsemen. God is doing this so everyone will know that He is the great God. Verse 18, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Both Israelites and Egyptians will know. God wants everyone to know. Not just His people Israel, but the unbelieving Egyptians. This is repeated in Philippians chapter 2. We are told in Philippians chapter 2, a great passage on the humility of Christ in going to the cross. We are told that God is going to highly exalt Christ because of what He did on the cross. And that Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believer and unbeliever alike. Everyone. Believers will confess it out of a heart of faith. Unbelievers will confess it under the hand of judgment. So too, back in Exodus chapter 14, the Egyptians and the Israelites will know the glory of God the greatness of God, the power of God, the almightiness of God. One more thing I want you to notice here. This glory of God will be shown in a way that will display both His salvation 
his redemption, his deliverance, as well as his judgment and his condemnation upon the Egyptians. This, this double meaning, this double pairing of judgment and salvation are in some ways two sides of the same coin. We see the same thing in Jesus Christ. Turn back with me to John 3 again. With the death of Christ in the cross, it not only brings salvation, it also brings judgment. Because God has made His way of salvation known, and none other will do. You can't come to God any way you want. You must come to God His way. John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice the way of redemption there, the way of salvation. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So we have eternal life and we have salvation portrayed in Christ. But a lot of people stop before they get to verse 18. John 3:18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's not believed in the only way of salvation God provides. The result is condemnation. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Verse 20 of Exodus 14. This pillar of cloud, this pillar of fire is now coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. You see, what was light for Israel, what was a beacon of salvation for Israel, is darkness for the Egyptians, is judgment on the Egyptians. This same pillar of cloud and fire means different things based upon your relationship to the true and living God. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. This event, just like the plagues, is presented as a miraculous, powerful miracle of God. This is not just some freak of nature that happens. We try to apply our modern-day scientific analysis to this thing and come up with, well, the wind blew so hard it made the water split and stay apart so they could walk in the dry ground. That's not what the Scripture portrays here. The Scripture basically says God has set aside the normal working of His world that He created so that He intervenes in such a way that a miracle happens that only He can do. A miracle happens like our salvation that only He can do. 
We can't do it. He must. The Israelites cannot save themselves here. He must. Verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on the left. It doesn't say, but I want to know who the first person is that stepped in there was. Okay? But those piles of water are setting up walls on either side of him. Do I really want to go in here? But what was their choice? It was either get slaughtered by the Egyptians or get drowned in the sea if they don't go in there. It's kind of like the words of Peter to Jesus when he is asked, Who do you say that I am? He says, well, you are the Christ. Where else do I have to go? Where else do these Israelites have to go? God has provided the way of escape for them. He has provided redemption, salvation, deliverance, freedom. Only God can arrange for this to happen. This is an option that people hadn't thought of. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. I'm sure the Egyptians are thinking, wow, they're all in a confined space now. That'll just make it easier. Let's go. Brings us to point number five. God's judgment falls on rebels. Verses 24 to 31. And in the morning watch, the morning watch was anywhere from 2 to 6 a.m. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Notice it all happened when the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. That phrase, looked down, is always an expression of either God's wrath or God's mercy. It's one or the other. I don't think there's much doubt of what it is in this one. It is God's wrath. It is clearly His wrath. Psalm 77 tells us that when God looked down, there was a violent, spectacular thunderstorm accompanied by thunder and lightning that is magnificent in its scope and power. And that that is the cause of the panic that God brought upon the Egyptian forces. As a matter of fact, look at the result in verse 25. Clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea 
the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What a glorious morning it must have been for the Israelites standing on the other side of the sea, now separated from Egypt by the waters, and no one's chasing them anymore. As a matter of fact, verse 30 tells us what they did see. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Now our translators have taken a little liberty in this verse. Because the word Egyptians in this verse, the two times it appears, is not plural in the Hebrew. It is singular. So in other words could be translated very legitimately. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from Egypt, and Israel saw Egypt dead on the seashore. It's as if the entire nation of Egypt is seen as one individual corpse. It is as if God has had victory now, not just over Pharaoh and his army, But over Egypt and all it represents with all of its gods, this is not a little victory by God. This is a total victory over the Egyptians. There is no doubt left in anyone's mind that God is not the all-powerful one. The issue is settled, especially in the minds of the Israelites who look and see that Egypt is dead. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord. And in His servant Moses. You notice God buttresses. He strengthens the reputation of Moses even through this Scenario where he has been doubted. God exalts Moses even through this. Well, what are the lessons for us? Well, it is obvious that the sweeping providential sovereignty of God is what ought to ground the trust of the people of God. It is what ought to ground the people of Israel. It is what ought to ground us even here today. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us these things were written as lessons for us so that we might learn and not follow the examples of the rebellious Israelites whom, as we will see, it won't take them long to turn against the Lord. We see that the lifting up of Moses' staff brings God's deliverance and redemption to Israel. But the lifting up of that staff brings death and judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt. We see the lifting up of Christ on the cross as the greater fulfillment of this event in that Christ's cross brings the forgiveness of sin as He is lifted up on it. But death and judgment is upon those who in darkness refuse to believe in Him. Some other themes that have come through as we've looked at these first 14 chapters of Exodus is that God judges sin. God judges Pharaoh and Egypt for their sin against Israel. God saves some from judgment. 
He saved the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews. And he also saved some Egyptians who joined with them, just like he saves believers today. We see that God provides only one way to be saved. There was only one way to escape the angel of death at the Passover. That was to have the blood of the Lamb applied to your doorposts. There was only one way to escape the armies of Pharaoh in Egypt. That was through the way God provided through the sea. There's only one way of salvation for us. It is through the death of Christ and believing in Him on the cross. Well, God has provided us some great lessons. He has shown us there is a way of redemption. There is a way of salvation. And when rejected, that way brings judgment. What is our response today? Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, I pray that as we look at the great works that you have done in the Old Testament, Father, that we would see that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you are the loving God who in grace and mercy chose to save your people Israel from the hand of the Egyptians and deliver them. Not because of how great they are or how smart they are or how talented they are or all the good things that they have done. But you saved them because you loved them. Because you chose them. I pray that lesson would be not lost on us. Pray, Father, that we would see our own sinfulness for what it is. We would see our rebellion against God for what it is. And then when we mistreat our husband or our wife or our children, when we fail in our relationships, that we would recognize, Father, that we are sinners. And that you have provided a great Savior. For Father, we are great sinners and you have provided a great Savior in Jesus Christ. May we give glory to God for the great things that he did. May we be in glory with the Lord in heaven and sing the song of Moses as well as the song of the Lamb. May your redeemed people, Father, learn the lessons that you are here to teach us, that you have brought to bear to us today in your word that we might be faithful servants seeking to love you in our actions, and that we would have conduct that is worthy of the gospel in our lives so that we might be a reflection of Jesus to the world around us and to those within the church. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.